Welcome back and to part two of our four-part series on 15 obstacles and solutions to your best BCP. In our last session, we covered the challenging obstacles you face with getting the buy-in you need to even get your plan off the ground. Today, we're diving into the nuts and bolts of writing the plan itself. So let's assume you've managed to get some traction in your organization. There's just a little hint of buy-in showing up. Now there's the task of putting a plan together. The threat risk assessment, the business impact analysis, not to mention the actual writing of the plan. Typically, even after you've managed to get some buy-in, the resource allocation tends to be far less than what you were hoping for. You still end up feeling like there is just too much work for one person to do. So how do we overcome having a large amount of work to do with limited resources to do it? We find opportunities to streamline. The first example I'm going to share today is streamlining the threat risk assessment. The actual risk assessment doesn't have to be a big part of your business continuity planning process. While risk mitigation is a critical piece to keeping your business safe and operating smoothly, you don't actually have to complete your threat risk assessment in order to start writing your plan. Ultimately, no matter what threats you're exposed to, at the end of the day, whether your building burns down, a pandemic strikes, you're the victim of a cyber event, or a tornado rips through, you are left with four possible results or some combination of these four. No building, the physical location where your staff go to work each day or where you produce your widgets is partially or completely uninhabitable for a period of time. This could be the result of a fire, a tornado, a gas leak, a pandemic, or an active shooter. Secondly, no people. It may be that a pandemic has struck the region, possibly a hurricane or other regional emergency has left your workforce with personal responsibilities that take precedence over their responsibilities to your organization, or just maybe the chicken was undercooked at the office holiday party and the majority of your operations team is off with serious food poisoning. One way or another, you are missing critical people and or the critical number of people required to continue business as normal. Third, no systems. This could be your data center is wiped out or your connectivity to your data center or systems has been cut. Construction in your parking lot, taking out your internet connectivity, a significant fire, or a disgruntled employee releasing their frustrations on your server room can all leave you with no access to some or all of your systems. Lastly, third-party providers, whether they supply you with software as a solution, courier services, power, or the raw materials you require to manufacture your widgets, these days, more and more companies are outsourcing and the ability of those vendors to continue operating impacts your ability to continue operating. So if you're tight for time and resources and you need to get a draft of that business continuity plan together, you can consider skipping the threat risk assessment for now and just ensure your plan is written such that you're prepared for no building, no people, no systems, 
or no third-party providers. So we've potentially dodged the threat risk assessment, but what about the business impact analysis? There's certainly a movement within the business continuity space that questions the need to do a full business impact analysis. I'm not going to get into that debate here, but the discussions are interesting to follow, and I encourage you to participate in them. For now, though, let's assume that you do want to complete a BIA. The BIA process uncovers a wealth of valuable information for your plan. Primarily, it establishes priorities and required resources to help ensure that everyone at the company is playing from the same playbook during recovery, and it provides you with an opportunity to validate that the disaster recovery solution you have in place for the IT side of the house will meet the needs of the organization. This helps to ensure that the plan you write is realistic for your organization. Now, having said that, there are few things you can do to simplify the BIA process. First of all, avoid open-ended questions. This generates a huge amount of information to sift through when BIA surveys are complete. If you have Excel, for example, referred to as Excel, MS Excel, Microsoft Excel, Microsoft Office, Office, Office 365, it makes it very difficult to collate results. Where possible, provide defined lists of resources that those completing the surveys can choose from. This makes collating results so much easier. Second, only ask for what you'll use. There are a lot of very expansive BIA survey questionnaires available, but sometimes they collect way more information than you really require. Particularly in a small to medium-sized organization, a commonly asked survey question is the number of people required to execute a process. It's understandable why the question is being asked. At the end of the day, the planner wants to know, well, how many people and workstations are going to be needed as recovery takes place? However, questions like this can lead to some double counting. For example, there may be financial processes that require two people due to the dual controls involved. So when asked how many people to execute this particular process, the individual completing the survey states, well, two. Now for the next process, perhaps only one person is required. So one is recorded and the same for the process after that. For these three processes, it may now look like we need four people, two for the first process and one for each of the next two processes. However, what if the same two people that do the first process can easily do the next two processes as well? What if each of these procedures don't actually consume their entire day? It may be that only two people are needed for all four processes to be completed. Capturing this type of data creates extra time for those completing the survey, extra time for the person collating the information, and all the while leading to some misleading results. In this particular example, once the BIA data is captured and the recovery time objectives for each of the processes decided upon, it may then be more helpful to look at all of the day one processes together and decide how many people a whole department might need to execute those processes and then repeat that for each subsequent day. 
The next obstacle is managing that volume of information you've already created as a result of the BIA, plus the information you'll capture as each of the business units sort through their recovery strategies. With a bare bones BIA survey, you've already cut down on some of the volume of information you need to deal with to complete the analysis, but there's still a lot that needs to go into the plan for every department, not to mention the rest of the material that makes it a full plan, the scope, the purpose, policies, procedures, table of contents, vendor lists, contact information. This can all feel very overwhelming to everyone involved. Plus, once it's written, no one's going to want to review this great volume that has been assembled. What you want to do here is really think about your audience when writing your business continuity plan. A great analogy provided at one of our workshops was to implement the three binder rule. So what exactly is the three binder rule and why are we talking about binders in a largely digital world? We'll be back with an explanation after a brief message from our sponsor, Kingsbridge BCP. Welcome back. We were just about to get into the three binder rule as a strategy to help manage the volume of information that goes into a BCP. So this rule is actually not really three binders, but rather refers to the equivalent amount of information that you would find in a binder, a pamphlet, and a business card. So let me explain. The full binder worth of information is what your auditors want to see. This will include the plan's introduction, the scope, the purpose, the policies, the change logs, as well as the response plans for each of your teams. Your emergency response procedures, such as your evacuation plans will be in here, along with your business impact analysis data, results of various exercises or disaster recovery tests that you've done in the past, as well as who might have attended those events. Much of this information is critical for demonstrating that you have a complete and effective plan and that you've been diligently maintaining it. However, for each of your recovery teams, they don't need all this noise when they need to respond. They need about the same amount of information as you could fit into a pamphlet with whatever supporting documentation they may need to reference, like paper forms or manual procedures they may need depending on the scenario they face. Those in the rest of your organization not directly involved in the recovery process really need about the amount of information that can fit on a business card. They need to know that there is a business continuity plan in place. They need to know who to contact or who will contact them to provide them with instructions once health and safety concerns are addressed and it's time to recover the business. So a binder's worth of information for the auditors, a pamphlet's worth of information for the response teams, and a business card's worth of information for the rest of the organization. Where you need to focus the majority of your energy in writing your plan 
is on the pamphlet portion. This is where the rubber hits the road in terms of recovering the business. Once the team responses are together, then worry about the binder's worth of information you need for the auditors and the business card snippet for the rest of the organization. Now, the next obstacle that our workshop participants described was ending up with a plan that doesn't actually reflect the realities of your organization, either because they assume the existence of resources that don't actually exist, or they may be missing so much information. The plans don't really reflect the reality of what the organization would actually do during a disaster. So how do you get a plan that truly reflects those realities? Keeping in mind, of course, that recovery will almost never go entirely as planned. To get a realistic plan, make sure you have the right people at the table. If you only meet with people at the high end of the food chain, you'll miss critical resources and processes that take place that more senior managers may not be entirely aware of. The devil can be in the details and you don't wanna miss something that will make or break your ability to recover. On the other hand, if you only meet with the front line, they won't necessarily have the big picture perspective to judge whether a resource or a process is truly critical or whether a particular recovery strategy or workaround is really permittable. You need to have a cross-section and managers, particularly new ones, need to check their ego at the door and allow those who report to them to speak to how processes actually work so that educated decisions can be made regarding how quickly it needs to return and how it can be modified if required. Another resource that is beneficial to have at the table if you can is IT. Your technology folks are an invaluable resource during the BIA and plan building process. They can validate the true system needs or suggest workarounds. A good example of this is when departments identify the company intranet as a critical resource. Most company intranets are just a series of shortcuts to information that is stored elsewhere. IT can tell you if and where to find the forum system or web address directly when the intranet is not up. Nowadays, many of the systems companies use are accessed through a web portal but most end users don't actually know whether what they're accessing is actually a local system or something hosted off site, whether there's a designated IP address required for a site or a certificate or token that needs to be installed locally on their computer. I've seen departments plan to have everyone work from home only to discover that the system they need to access can't actually be accessed remotely. Your IT department can help you sort through all of this. And of course, they are absolutely necessary to provide you with the organization's disaster recovery capabilities. A recovery time objective of eight hours for a process is not realistic if the systems required to execute that process will not be up for 16 hours. Now, sometimes when you get a little bit of interest at the senior management level, it doesn't always trickle all the way down to the people you really need on board to actually contribute to the plan development itself. They aren't seeing it as a priority and as a result, so they're not engaged. 
So how do you get individuals to actually participate and not tune out of the business continuity process? We'll talk about this a little more when we get to maintenance, as many of the same solutions apply. But first, this is where you'll want to leverage that champion that you've been able to find in your organization. Compose an email outlining the importance of the BCP process and ask your champion to review it and send it from their email account. If you compose it, it's not a lot of extra work for them, but having an email come from senior management emphasizing the importance of everyone's participation in the process raises the profile and priority of their BCP obligations. I've worked with many organizations where I'm told by individuals point blank they are not going to lift a finger to work on the BCP unless their boss tells them to. So once you have participants in the room, also spend some time educating them about the importance of BCP and share the stories you may have used for the purposes of getting buy-in. Emphasizing close calls for you or a neighboring business or competitor can make the process seem much more important. So that finishes up part two of our four-part series on 15 obstacles and solutions to your best BCP. In our next part, we'll take a look at how to overcome the obstacles faced in exercising your plan. I'll see you right back here for part three.